0: community, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. No matter what your personality type is, you were created for this thing. And that community and that belonging finds its fulfilled purpose on earth for us by being connected to the local church. Jesus saves people, and then he connects them to one another. And so today we're going to examine This biblical concept of community in the church. And I'm going to put to you today that what the Bible teaches us of community in the church, it looks like this, that we as a people gather together and we see more value in Christ and in one another than in our material possessions. So as we look at this text in the book of Acts, where we begin with this full number of people at this time who were coming into the community to be a part of the church. And the Bible says that those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Not about you, but that is so striking to me for pretty obvious reasons. I would say. How can such a thing possibly be true when we know that people are so diverse and complicated? How do we get there? What is one heart, one soul, this sort of unity? It seems impossible even for one small household to have this kind of unity than the full number of Christians at this time. That is jarring. That is shocking. This was the early church, so we might be tempted to think that this sort of unity is short-lived. If we know our Bibles well, we'll know at this point um, we haven't had the big Gentile ingrafting that we see later, right? When we see um, Peter go to Cornelius' house where things are just really weird and tense and no one knows what's going on, but the Holy Spirit shows up and says, hey, I'm doing this so that you'll see it's bigger than you think. That hasn't even happened yet. But this kind of unity that we see here, this sort of one heart, one soul, is something that God spoke to his people long before. This was his vision. This was his goal. This was what he would accomplish through the work of Christ in forming his church. We see that in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, where the prophet writes, "...I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh." This is what God has been purposing since the fall. And if we're honest, even before that, God's plan, God's purpose, even if we look at original creation, was this sort of picture of people who are diverse, yet unified. Who are different, yet we have one common heart, one common soul that we love God. We see these pictures of unity in the Bible. One of my favorites is Psalm 133, and I think it's, it's either going to gross you out or just make you think this is interesting. Because it says this, Behold how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of Aaron, down to his, the collar of his robes. That's such a weird picture, right? It's so, it's so weird. Like I could just see that being in some like beard oil commercial. <laughs> it's a strange picture, but the, the picture of oil in the Old Testament was just about this beautiful, precious item that God's people had. Oil was... Rich, as it still is. But it, it was this sign of blessing. And this picture of oil just running down the, the head, unto the beard, all of these things. It's a shine. This is what unity is like. It is like an overflowing blessing from God. It's precious when we have one heart, one mind. The unity of the church exists because of what we talked about last week. The unity of the church exists because of the heart of the church. As a matter of fact, we see here in verse 33 that the apostles were testifying about the very thing we talked about last week, that Jesus really is who he said he was, that he's the Son of God, that he's risen from the dead. This is the message that was being pumped in over and over and over again, and it's where the unity comes from. And if we're honest with ourselves, that sort of unity around something like that is, is miraculous, as we talked about last week, because we believe in a miracle. We believe in something that if you just remove yourself from a Christian bubble, that if you grew up in one like me, it's weird to the outside world what we believe. We believe a man born of a virgin was god in the flesh and that he died on a roman cross and that all of our wrongdoing our sin was placed on him there he carried it satisfied god's wrath when he died and then he rose from the dead this is a radical thing to believe i think we forget that sometimes in this 21st century where there's churches on every corner We believe in something to the outside world that looks a little crazy. But this is what was happening. The Bible says, and we'll get more into this here in a second, that this word, this truth, this gospel was being proclaimed with great powers, the move of the Holy Spirit. This is what people were unified around. Now, I said something last week, and I want to bring it back around to this because I think this is important, especially when we're talking about unity. You may be thinking, but what about all the different churches now that believe this message in essence? But we have differences, right? We, we, at the fields, we profess believer's baptism, right? We would say that our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who profess a form of infant baptism, that we would say we think they're, they're wrong. But we also think that they're Christians, right? So there's a unity, and, and as time is going on, there's sort of this complicated thing where we have to come to grips with. We may not be able to go to the same church, but we are unified church universal. This is a little bit complicated. So I, I do want to point that out last week as I talked about theological distinctions, how... Um, That shouldn't divide us. And when I I talk about that, I mean from the church universal. Okay, We should keep the heart of the church, the heart of the church. This is is the center. This is what was bringing people together in the beginning. And 2,000 years later, certain distinctions might dictate what sort of local church you plug into. But ultimately we affirm, we, we believe that this is the message. That Christ, his lordship, his resurrection binds us together. Now, when we talk about this sort of one heart, one soul, I think it's important that we realize scripture's mandate to protect such unity. That we should guard that sort of unity. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naïve. Even early on, as in Paul's day, there were divisive things trying to sneak up. So this one heart, one soul, there was already things trying to mess that up. Okay, It's important that we guard such unity, that we remember how important it is. And we follow Paul's advice here that we are careful. That we don't veer off into a divisive, argument or attitude about something that really isn't meant to be that that important. Okay? The core doctrine that the apostles taught is what Paul's addressing here. And he's saying, don't fall for that. You know, in, in our day and time there are people who would call themselves Christians who would also deny the resurrection, which is a baffling thing to me. But this is the sort of thing he's talking about where we we need to guard against that such teaching. We need to guard this unity because that is where the power is that holds us together. Everything we talked about last week. But then as we follow our text down we see him say two phrases that stood out to me. It says that in verse 33 and with great power, and then if you skip down a few lines, you'll see great grace. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the great grace was upon them all. The great power flowing out from the apostles' testimony was not emanating from their own intellects, but from the Holy Spirit. It's the whole point of the book of Acts, right? The work of the Spirit of God in the church. And the message itself, by the Spirit, through the message, is where the power was. And this is why, in the community of the church, the New Testament teaches us that we are not to operate on the charisma or personality of pastors and leaders. Churches that tend to veer that way struggle with either being effective for the true kingdom of God or end up becoming something else other than a church or end up closing their doors altogether. Now, that's not a denial of the giftings that God has placed in the church. We know this. There are giftings, but it is a denial of idolatry. You see, we, we see this even in the book of Acts itself. Going back to that story I mentioned earlier with the Gentiles, when Peter goes to this guy Cornelius's house, the first thing Cornelius does is bow down and try to worship him, which Peter, I, I just I play that out of my head. I wonder if he's just how his reaction would be. If it's like, you know, terrified, or if it's maybe this has happened before, and he's just like rolling his eyes, like, oh, not again. Get up, get up. I'm just a man like you. Peter was emphasizing that earlier on. Listen, the things that are happening, the things that God is doing, this great power that's coming upon his people is not for me, it's not from John and the rest of the boys, right? This is something that's coming from the very Spirit of God. So, this message, this great power, shows up in this way. Romans 12, verses 3 to 8 says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And there's the important part. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individual members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching and the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity and the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The great power that is moving among the church starts to unfold in this way where the apostles are teaching and the people are using their gifts to help one another. We'll see particularly the gift of generosity later on. But this is not new. This has been happening since Acts 2. As a matter of fact, Acts 2, verses 42 and 43, you'll see some very similar things. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So, the great power experienced within the gospel community is by the Holy Spirit using various members of the body for their various purposes through the message of Jesus. So, we have great power, and then we have great grace great grace was upon them all that's what made them tender in their love and their care for one another i want to take a kind of an aside here for a little bit of some doctrinal work some doctrinal teaching here it's important that we understand the distinction between the law and the gospel we understand the distinction between law and grace. So you might remember Jesus taught the two greatest commandments in the law were that we love God with all of our being, and that we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. He said all the law and the prophets hang on these two things. And I'm here to tell you we cannot even come close to keeping such high commands apart from great grace. You see, God's law is and has always been good. I think we have this tendency especially in Baptist circles it seems to think that God's law is some sort of like icky thing that we don't want to look at anymore. It makes us feel bad. Ew. And yes, the law was meant to lead you to your need for Jesus. It was meant to make you feel, I can't measure up to all the good things God commands. I can't do that. Yes and amen. It's meant to lead you straight into the arms of Christ so that you can receive great grace. And that when you receive that great grace, now the idea is when we look at the law of God... When we have been saved, we can look at it like David did and say, man, I could stay up all night delighting in how good this is. The law and the prophets hang on these two commands, and great grace is what empowers Christians not to even still keep them perfectly, but to have a different outlook on them. To be able to Have this new birth perspective. We're able to walk in these two great commandments. And here's the kicker. Here's where we're kind of going with this. Not out of some sort of compulsion. Not out of some sort of, well, I guess I have to do this now. But because of the great grace that we have received. It's not. I have kids, so pardon the analogy. It's not go clean your room because I said so. And your reaction is, oh, you roll your eyes, okay, I guess I'll go clean my room. And then your parent goes in there later and finds everything's just shoved in the closet anyway. Sorry, I'm a little frustrated this week. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the sort of obedience to God's law that we're called. We're we are called we we are given this new birth perspective. And we as a people who have received this great grace of the gospel, we don't seek to love God and love people because we want to get to heaven that way or we want to be forgiven that way. We've already been forgiven in Christ. We've already received great grace. So when we look at how the early church here treated one another, We need to understand it wasn't out of compulsion. It wasn't out of, hey, I need to be a really good person so that God will be impressed with me when I show up in heaven or that he'll let me in the gates even. It was because their hearts had already been changed, not that they were trying to do something to change their hearts. You see, the Scripture even tells us, and we looked at this last week, but just to highlight quickly, Ephesians 2.10, the Scripture tells us the good works have already been prepared for us to walk in. These things have already been made ahead of time. God said, I'm going to save you, and I'm going to give you a job. And the job is going to be not a hindrance, but a joy to you. The greatest commandment is loving God with all our being. The second is like it, that we love our neighbor as ourselves. To truly know and love God, not merely know about him, doesn't happen apart from a great work of grace. To be able to love your neighbor in a selfless way that reflects the gospel doesn't happen apart from a great work of grace. This power and this grace bleeds into everything regarding the Christian community. The grace of God saves us, sanctifies us, draws us nearer to God and to one another, as we will see here in a second. It calls us, and this is where we're going to marinate on for the last bit here, it calls us to a higher view of God and people than we previously had. You see, the community of the church Meets the needs of its members. This is the practical outworking of what it means to be a part of God's church. In verse 32, after being told they were of one heart and one soul, we are told that no one said anything that they possessed was their own and they had everything in common. This is not. A political ideology being enforced by a government. This isn't some sort of compulsive thing. You must do this. But this is a Christian community stirred to love and good works by the Holy Spirit. We see this again. Earlier in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 45 says, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And my favorite like, little tagline here, I just love this, it's, there was not a needy person among them. They were selling their properties, They were doing what they needed to do to care for one another, so much so that there was not a needy person among them. Both physical and spiritual needs are important, and both are emphasized in Scripture as a part of the gospel community. But this instance, it's referring to physical needs. And I think we have a tendency, especially in the 21st century, to kind of not look at this to not consider this but to kind of spiritualize all this stuff you know we want to meet people's spiritual needs and let me, let me first before we get into it I want to say this meeting the spiritual need of the gospel to lost people is priority number one okay that is the most important thing we want to see people know Christ but but we also want to see people cared for and loved in very tangible physical ways as well You see, this sort of love the church had for one another, it was this willingness to be there for each other. We get an example of what it looks like to have the wrong heart about it because it's not about even the action. It's about the hearts of the people. If you read the next portion of Acts... We get a big contrast between this guy, Barnabas, at the end, who sells a property and gives the proceeds to the apostles and says, here, help the poor and needy among us with us." And then we get this guy named Ananias, who also sells a property. He does the same action. He also gives money to the apostles. He lays it at their feet. The difference... Is the motive. The difference is the intention. The difference, we could say, is the truth. Because Barnabas did this out of love and care, and it, it was not meant to be something that he wanted even necessarily advertised. People just noticed and were like, man, how generous was that of Barnabas to do this thing? And then Ananias says, I, I'd like some of that glory. So he sells the land. He gives money, but he holds back some. Wasn't quite ready to let it go. But here's the thing, guys. Him not letting all the money go was not the issue. The issue was he pretended like he did. He wanted the perception of the people that, look at this wonderful man who's giving to the church. Later, the apostle Peter would tell him, you lied to the Holy Spirit. He even says, While the land was still yours, was it not yours? (laughs) And when you sold the money, was it not yours to do with whatever you wanted to do with it? No one's condemning you for any of those actions. It's the lying. It's the wrong motivation. So we have a warning there that the church is not a place for performance but for service. The church is not a place to bolster our egos and try and make people think well of us. Two reasons. One, we see Ananias and and the reason not. The second reason, it won't work. You're around one another long enough as even as a gospel community, you're going to see the cracks in me. You're going to see my flaws. You're going to see places where I need grace from you. If my goal as a church member, is to come in and try and make everyone look at me and see how good I am, I'm going to fail. But if your goal is to participate in a community with great power, great grace, by the Holy Spirit, and to be able to be there for one another, that's what God intended it for. We have a warning about if we go into this holding too tightly to our material possessions as God's people. James chapter 2, the brother of our Lord, wrote in verse 14 to 17, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And here's his example. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, "Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body." What good is that? So also, faith, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see, our being there for one another in these very tangible ways? Is it a reflection of the Spirit of God in us, a reflection of the faith we profess? We would argue the Apostle James is not arguing that we are saved by works alone, but rather that our works are a natural outflow of our faith. When God has truly changed our hearts and we respond in faith, we are called to see more value in people than we do things. Our old nature and. This is not, I don't know where I heard this before. I just kind of ripped it from somewhere. I loved it. No, I'm not plagiarizing. I just have no idea who said this, okay? <laughs> but our old nature is prone to love things and use people. And our new nature should direct us to love people and use things. It gives us the right view of the Imago Dei. It gives us the right view of people made in God's image and their worth and their value. Our willingness to serve in this way is based on the fact that we know all of our material things will one day be ashes, but the family of God is eternal. I do want to emphasize, even though the text is not emphasizing this point, I do want to point out spiritual needs are important also. Jesus is our example of this. Second Corinthians 8-9 For you know that great, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is talking about spiritual richness. And Paul tells us how we can live this out because spiritual needs being met can be actually more messy than physical needs, right? If I see someone who has a physical need, let's say they lack a winter coat, right, and the cold is coming, and I have the means to get them a coat, that's easy. That's an easy fix, right? Right? That still takes a heart that's changed and augmented towards service for one another to do that. But it's more difficult, as Paul will say in Galatians chapter 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, and you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's more difficult. I don't know about you, I don't tend to like it when people are trying to even lovingly correct me. Keep watch on yourself, he says, lest you be too tempted. And this is my favorite part. This, I think, encompasses the spiritual and the physical. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Are you getting the theme here? This service is about humility. It's about a right view of Christ and a right view of ourselves and a right view of one another. And we all, as the community of the church, have need from one another in various ways. Let me say that again. We all, as God's people, have need from one another in various ways. You are not the outlier. If you're sitting there thinking, "Ah, you're not Superman. Superman. You're not Supergirl, Super Lady, Wonder Woman. I should have went with that one. It's way better. <laughs> You're not Invincible. All of us have need. Even your pastors. All of us. None of us are above this. We are all in need of gentle rebuke from one another away from sin. We are all called to bear one another's burdens. Your sufferings, your hardships, the days when you're just melancholy, those are mine too. As mine are yours. Your triumphs, when things are going good, when you get that promotion at work, or when your child professes faith in Christ, that's mine too. This is what it means to be part of the community. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We are of one spirit, one heart. Because this is what Christ has made us to be. You don't have to bear your burden alone. The biblical portrayal of the community of the church is one that sees more value in Christ and his people than material possessions. So maybe you're like me. As I mentioned in the beginning, maybe you like to escape into books or games or something that might be considered unsocial. Brother, sister, if that's you, if you're like me, let me tell you, there is no world you can escape to that will satisfy your longings like the community of the church. Middle earth is great, it's not real. Okay. Or maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you like being around people. Maybe you, you really, you don't drain from people, but you, you really get recharged. Because you long for community. Brother, sister, if that's you, I'm here to tell you there is no family like the family of God. This is a harsh reality I had to face one time at the, at the church where I was sitting under uh, my pastor friend uh, where I was at in Cleburne. One of the things, he, he mentioned this, that there's no family like the family of God because it's eternal. And I immediately, he, he had convicted my heart because he said, even that person in the church that maybe you had a little fight with, that person that maybe you didn't see eye to eye on everything, you didn't get along Guess what? They're your brother, your sister forever if they're in Christ. So you might as well be reconciled. And I immediately thought of someone in my past who I was just like, yep, I I need to apologize to them because I'm still carrying that bitterness. There's no family like the family of God. It outlasts everything. So Christian, how easy it is for us to forget the sort of people we're supposed to be. The culture can creep into the life of the church, and we stop viewing one another through this lens of love and sacrifice as Christ has loved and sacrificed for us, especially in our 21st century, where things are just like community has gone virtual now, which is just weird, right? There are several people that I've never met in real life, but they think we're best friends because of Facebook or something. I'm not saying that's not a cool thing, like, but let's not forget that we need one another. A life that adores Jesus as God will also adore his bride. Imagine how offensive it would be if you're married here, if someone came up to you and said, man, I love you you. Or, ma'am, I love you. You are awesome, but I cannot stand your spouse. Imagine how offensive. Because I don't know about you, but to me, I would feel like, then you really don't love me because I love her, right? That's how connected the church is to our bridegroom. This goes back to God's good law that we are to love him with all of our being and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves or maybe you're sitting in here and you've never been a part of the church community maybe you wandered in here maybe someone invited you or you know you stumbled in because you're waiting for the gym to open there're plenty of places on earth where you can participate in a community. There's lots of them, right? You can find the most niche community out there. I learned this really quickly when I, and this goes back to the weird gross beard analogy. I learned how weird communities can be when I was younger and I just decided I was gonna grow a beard and I've looked online and it turns out there's like a whole subreddit of guys with beard tips and how to trim your beard and what to put on your beard and all this stuff it is a community that I didn't know I needed. <laughs> right? <laughs> you can find community anywhere and around almost anything. But only the church has a community centered on the person of Jesus. And only the person of Jesus. Lasts as far as a community focus. Everything else falls to the wayside. We don't always see it this way. And, and maybe you're here and the, maybe the church has hurt you. Maybe you've, you've been to church in the past and you just felt hurt, felt like you didn't belong. Listen, I get that. But we still want to invite you in. Because though we are not perfect, we want to strive to love you like this. And want you to invite you in to love us like this. But it starts with the person of Jesus. There's beauty and love in the experience of the community of the church, but it never It never happens appropriately if Jesus is not in the mix. It starts and stays with a focus on the gospel that we believe, as I said in the beginning, the weird thing that Jesus was born of a virgin, truly God, truly man, died for our sins on the cross, rose from the grave, and he's ascended and we await his coming. We believe this, and we invite you to trust this work today on the cross for, your, for you and on your behalf to be a part of God's eternal family. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we love you. We thank you that you have called us to yourself, that you would have invited us in as your people. Lord, I pray you would stir in us this sort of love, this sort of commitment, not out of compulsion or some desire to impress anyone, but out of desire for what you have put in us by your Spirit, the love of you and the love of our neighbor. May we never forget how important our gathering together is. That we're not a social club, that we're not some group of people joined together around something frivolous, but that we are the eternal family of God by your great power and great grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.